0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've been doing it for coming up on eight and a half years for the last two plus We have been starting off our show with a little COVID-19 discussion, kind of a what caught your eye in the world of COVID-19. We're going to do that again this week. We're going to do a little something different. Every now and then, we bring in a real expert to talk about COVID-19. We are just lay people trying to make sense of things, reading articles and talking to one another. Every now and then, we bring in someone who studies this for a living. We are a full crew This half hour, this is Cade Massey hosting with everybody. Eric Bradlow is here, Audie Weiner is here, Shane Jensen is here, and joining us today for the first time on Wharton Moneyball is Dr. Jason Maley. Good afternoon, Jason. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Delighted to have you. Dr. Mailey is an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. He's also an attending physician at the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine, at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center there in Boston. And vital for us, one of the things he studies in his research and his practice is long COVID. We are here to learn more about long COVID. Jason, can you start us off by telling us how you in the field define long COVID? What is long COVID?
1: Sure. So I would def- we would define long COVID as uh, someone who hasn't returned to their prior health after having COVID-19. Generally, this is in the two to three month range after having the acute infection. Um, Early after the infection, many people begin to notice symptoms like fatigue or shortness of breath. And those may, and some people improve over the weeks or months after having COVID-19. So the WHO has defined this as beginning at three months to try to capture people who have truly persistent symptoms that haven't just been slow to resolve over the months after having COVID-19.
2: And then can you give us some sense of the range of, well, one, just the duration. You're saying that the threshold for being categorized as long COVID is three months. What's the distribution of length of time people experience these symptoms? And then can you give us some sense of the range of severity of the symptoms?
1: Yeah. So we see people um, in our clinic and in our research who had COVID-19 in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, and um, they're still experiencing severe symptoms. We see other people who they had symptoms that persisted for three to six months, but they made gradual progress each month in terms of improvement. And by six to nine months, they feel back to or pretty close to where they were before. And there's a huge range of symptoms, but most commonly things like debilitating fatigue to the point where People feel like they're walking around uh, weighed down by weights all day long. They have exhaustion when they walk around their house or they try to go to work. Changes in cognition, difficulty with thinking, memory, um, losing train of thought easily, having difficulty finding the right words during conversation, and shortness of breath, difficulty with discomfort breathing either at rest or moving around. Those are some of the most common aspects among many others.
2: Okay, I'm gonna just ask a few more clarifying questions, and Eric's gonna jump in. Eric's trying to jump in here, but one: um, how common is it that a symptom emerges anew in this longer, later phase, as opposed to just persisting from something that they experienced in the first
1: three months? Yeah, it's it's fairly common. Um, many people have a sense that they're starting to recover from their acute infection, and then maybe a couple of weeks after, sometimes more than that after having the acute infection, they begin to notice they're just, they tried to get back to go into the gym and their heart is racing, even just doing light exercise or the next day after trying to be physically active, they're in bed feeling like they're sick again, aching and having chills. So it can come on in this delayed manner. Sometimes for people, it's just a continuation. They felt short of breath during COVID and they never got better.
2: Okay. Let me ask you just a few course um, distribution questions about the frequencies. And I understand these are, I'm asking for course summaries. I also understand you guys are still trying to figure this thing out, but like roughly how do you think about mixing your own impression with the data or just going with the data? What's your impression of the number of people who, the percentage of those who contract COVID who, qualify as having some long covid symptom at the 3 month mark and then another distinction seems to me it sounds like some are persisting and they kind of work through it over a few right, months right. and then there's another that have this kind of long tail and it's not something that's just kind of slowly dissipating just more slowly than they would like but actually something that's categorically different it sounds like
1: yeah no it's a great question and it's a it's a challenging epidemiology question because it's a syndrome it's a collection of symptoms not something that you test positive or negative for so it's it can be messy to look in healthcare data and find who has long covid versus who could have shortness of breath from many other causes many people have seen the cdc figure that long covid of some form occurring in one in 5 people who had acute covid there are studies from the uk which has done very good surveys of a a sample representative of their population throughout the pandemic. They estimated after 12 weeks, about three to 7% in in some of their studies and and some up to 10 to 15% were reporting some symptom that was new after having COVID-19 12 weeks after the infection that wasn't present before. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think that's probably closer to the truth. Um, But but somewhere around that range.
3: So, real quickly, wait, wait, clarify: COVID or just any positive test, or even what fraction? Can you clarify? Say so that. Can you say that one more time? Uh, so, one thing you mentioned—the CD one in five figure—is is a fraction of the acute COVID cases. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, serious COVID cases. Um, when you say three to seven, or with those other numbers, what is the denominator? Yeah, so that's uh, people who had positive tests for COVID-19 of any severity.
1: So it, it could be mild or minimally symptomatic all the way to severe symptoms.
2: Okay, Shane and then Eric.
4: Well, I, I mean, one thing that's obviously uh, been a real kind of a uh, big part of the COVID story is how much it, it, uh, it varies by kind of age and various comorbidities. So that three to 7%, is presumably kind of an average over all of those. Do you right. like, I guess like, are there certain age groups, uh, are the same age groups that are very, you know, that have the most severe uh, kind of health issues with uh, COVID itself, also the ones most prone to long COVID, or is it a little bit more kind of equal across like a- demographics?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we see, um, we certainly see it across all ages from young to old. There's, Several of the studies have suggested fairly consistently, many of the symptoms are more common in women than men. One of the challenges, if it's not done in a survey form in the population like the UK, but done through looking at health records, which are most studies that are, you might read about, um, they're ascertaining di- encounters for fatigue or shortness of breath or all of the other symptoms after having an acute COVID diagnosis over some period of time. And it's challenging to know in that data first, what the bias is in terms of people first had to present to healthcare and receive healthcare in order to have that diagnosis in the record. So it's people who are most engaged in finding a solution or answers.
2: Do we know that women take care, better care of themselves? Like men are more reluctant to seek health. Is it? Do, can we assume that there's a bias that runs in that direction?
1: So, yeah, there, there can be a bias in terms of who's engaging in, in health care, who's seeking answers and taking care of themselves. There's also um, definitely bias in people who notice the symptoms more severely than others. And my sense is from talking to patients from young to old, young patients who jump back into physical activity immediately notice something is very off. My heart is racing. I feel exhausted. We see older patients who were in the ICU, and they're they're just thrilled to be home and walking around, and they may not bring up the same symptoms to the same severity. So I think that it's challenging looking at some of these studies because of that bias.
2: One last clarifying question: You contrasted medical record based studies with the survey you're referring to survey research in the UK, and it sounds um, because you're holding it up as a nicer standard. I'm guessing that's not some slipshod survey, but rather some kind of panel that's been enrolled and is being reviewed, being queried systematically.
1: Yes. Yeah. This is for the UK Office for National Statistics. Um, It's done fairly systematically to be a sample representative of the Mm -hmm. population. Mm -hmm. Um, The others using healthcare data are looking at the health system that the researchers may have had access to and looking for billing codes that represent a diagnosis that someone made during a clinic encounter. Right. Okay.
5: Okay. Well, given how patient I've been, Kate, I'm going to ask three questions of Dr. <laughs> Maley, Mailey, but they're going to be quick ones. So the first one is, is the degree of someone's initial infection correlated or predictive of their likelihood of long COVID? So if I had a severe case of COVID, am I more likely to get long COVID than not? Let's start with that one.
1: Yes. So the studies looking at this have suggested people who are more severely ill are more likely to have post-acute symptoms, persistent symptoms. It doesn't mean it's not common in people with mild illness. We're seeing lots of young people with it after-mild illness, but if you are in the ICU, it's almost guaranteed that in the recovery period, you'll have physical impairment. You may have cognitive impairment, shortness of breath, those types of symptoms. And that was known very well prior to COVID-19 for other infections as well.
5: Okay. Maybe, my, maybe a related question, so this is really 1A, and then I'll have one other one quickly, is how many people have non-monotone patterns of severity, which means they're severe. Mm-hmm. Maybe they get better for a while. Maybe, maybe my long COVID doesn't kick in. Is there, can there be a three-month dormant period, and then it sprouts up again. What are you noticing in terms of the monotonicity of the patterns?
1: Yeah, there's definitely different kind of phenotypes in terms of the trajectory of symptoms. There's that very slow to resolve, yet improving consistently nevertheless, better by six months, nine months. There are others who have this roller coaster of, I I thought I was completely over this. And then I started having numbness and tingling in my hands and feet that was brand new two months later. And they have a, a waxing and waning pattern of symptoms. And that's the group that is often younger patients. It's where I think a lot of the attention is for long COVID because it's a mystery. Is this the immune system? What is going on that is continuing to trigger these persistent symptoms throughout the body?
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe my, my last question, that's my last one for now. Um, you mentioned that it's not something that has like a single diagnosis. It's a uh, you know, a combination of symptoms. Um, is this where it mentions, we looked in your bio, it mentions your use of machine learning and other methods. Is this how you guys are one application of how you're using data science, which is, you know, whenever I think of things with higher order interactions or nonlinear patterns, I think of the use of AI, machine learning, etc., which can help identify, you know, some combination of diagnosis codes or different level of symptoms that might be predictive of long COVID. Am I guessing right that that's how you want application of machine learning or are you guys using it in an entirely different way?
1: That's, that has been one application. Um, I haven't been using that specifically, but some researchers have found essentially a, a predictive signature of long COVID within the medical record because it's such a challenging diagnosis to make. If you were to do research, it would be great to be able to say, "We know these. This person truly had it. This person didn't." And right now, this That's approach the problem, right? You're doing unsupervised,
5: unsupervised learning. You don't have an actual gold standard of everyone scored on this, and so it's hard to develop a, a predictive model. But let me just say, by the way, right. the, this seems to me. I've always believed that preventative medicine is as important, if not more important than I'll call it, you've already gotten it. This would be a wonderful thing if you were able to say to somebody, you know, by the way, you're a likely patient of long COVID. You know, we've got 16 things you can do that might lessen that probability. Right, exactly.
2: Dr. May I'm going to ask a version of Eric's question 1B or something, and that is, what's the connection between vaccination history and mm-hmm. the likelihood of contracting long COVID?
1: Yeah, several studies have looked at this in the UK, in Israel, and in the US. Um, and they've s- found fairly consistently that people who have had multiple vaccination rounds, multiple rounds and potentially boosters, have a, a decreased probability, a lower probability of mm-hmm. developing long COVID than mm-hmm. people who are unvaccinated or had just a single dose. So we think, and it makes sense biologically, there's a protection likely clearing the virus quickly from your system, reducing what we call viremia, the spread of virus and multiplication throughout your body or replication throughout your body.
2: Is, is, is there any similar relationship with the number of times you've, you've contracted it?
1: That's not known because it's, it's, um, we haven't had as much data around that. Mm-hmm. It's concerning definitely from my experience because I see patients – who may not have had long COVID the first time and developed it the second infection, or they may have gotten over their recovery that was six months and very slow. And then with a new infection had a big setback in their symptoms. So it's a risk. Okay. Okay.
3: Yeah. Uh, So I've been trying to track the literature on, on, uh, on long COVID and there's a lot of data or published papers that are trying to make sense of frequency, severity, markers in the blood and things like that and that's it's extremely contradictory and hard to make sense out of so one study does a matched adjusted controlled positive people not positive people and they find fairly similar rates of things like fatigue and I, I don't mean to try out my own medical history but I remember when I was in college I had about a six to eight month period of just fatigue turns out no it didn't show up positive at anything it probably was Epstein-Barr um, in other words and, and, I, and I work with a sleep center and I know lots of sleep doctors here at Penn and um, people are, see fatigue. I mean, doctors see fatigue. That's what they come to see you. Um, but they're not they can't be conclu- conclusive that what they're seeing is, is long COVID. But it's just uh, it's just the subset of the people who have had COVID, which at this point is enormous numbers of people right. who are matching with their fatigue at the, the symptoms at roughly the same rate. And so do you do you I mean, so, for example, some of these studies did notice for a incredible um, odds ratio for loss of sense and smell among the COVID people. Mm-hmm. That seems. Yeah. I mean, that's a long symptom. And I actually know someone quite well who has been two years out and still can't smell anything. Um, and, and he wonders yeah. whether it's lifelong. Um, and I actually want you, want you to address that. Is, is there hope for anyone at that point? And But the other issue is, the, uh, the, this is the biggest obstacle, and this is something that has to do with, with policy and data analysis. When I talk to people, and, and these are people who you're talking to right now, about um, uh, most people are pretty uh, accepting of the fact that post-vaccination, post uh, in the current round of COVID, which we're now ramping up another one, that severe, severe illness is, is quite rare, particularly in younger people, healthy people. But, but then there's a follow-up. But what about long COVID? And right. it's hard to discuss that when you have when we can't talk about this as on the same plane. People are, to, are quote back at me 30 uh, percent. and 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 I just I, I just can't see that. It doesn't jive with my own experiences. Obviously, it exists and it's it's a consequence of viral viral illness and, and it has particular effects. But how does the COVID number here's my question? How does the COVID <laughs> long-term COVID compared to other bad va- va- viruses that have long-term effects? Is this particularly different than having a bad virus, um, a bad case of the flu, which which also does this?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. There's, there's a lot of historical perspective on this. In fact, going centuries back, there have been descriptions of uh, pandemics that caused a large number of people to have what was called many different names, neuralgia, um, all sorts of names describing fatigue, cognitive impairment, uh, shortness of breath, what, what we're seeing with long COVID. And there's an entity, ME slash CFS, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a syndrome that we see as well with long COVID. So there have been, and EBV is a good example, viruses that cause very similar spectrums of post-acute infectious syndromes. Um, The smell and taste is one unique aspect, which hadn't been seen to this extent previously. But aside from that, many of the patterns of symptoms we see reflect on things we've learned from past post-acute viral syndromes as well. So it's not completely clear to me if it's just we've never seen the scale of this in modern medicine with a virus in this short time frame. And so it gained this amount of recognition, um, or if it's substantially different than other post-acute viral syndromes. I suspect biologically, there's, there's a shared mechanism that hopefully we'll learn more about.
2: Dr. Mayley, even the well, way my you first described I that history, back. real quickly, just the way you described that history, you referred to past pandemics is where people have written about that, which would suggest that it's much more about the prevalence than it is about being categorically different experience.
1: Yes. Yeah, so it has that's been common. definitely written with past pandemics and the recognition is high in that period. And then EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono. Um, that's a common one where people, I see even patients with long COVID who said, I ask, have, have you ever experienced anything like this even throughout your life with mono and people will bring up, I took me two years to recover from mono. So that's there's, there's a similar pattern and, um, it's not yet clear how much this will differ over time in terms of recovery
2: with with mono what percentage experience some kind of long track of symptoms
1: that's a good question that i don't know off the top of my head the answer to um and it's similar the spectrum of recovery is wide so how you define long symptoms matters fatigue is very common for people in the weeks to months after having mono. I would say what we're seeing here with two years of memory and thinking difficulty, no return of taste and smell, other very prolonged symptoms are uncommon, quite uncommon. I I would guess less than 5%. Okay,
3: okay. Can you answer, uh, are are you able to treat things like loss of taste and smell or is that just going to happen or not on its own? So there, there are some treatment options that have
1: been shown in other viruses to be effective. One of the first things people try is called smell training, where the thought is that inflammation has damaged the pathway that runs above the nose into the brain that transmits smell signals. And like you would retrain an injured neurological pathway in your arm after a stroke, the smell training has particular smells and focus for months, focusing on these smells to try to reignite essentially those smell pathways. There are studies going on right now of other therapies that may treat inflammation that could help return smell smell pathways. I would say my experience, although the vast, vast majority of people, even if it was six to 12 months recover smell, the people I see who are a year and a half to two years out with this, they've tried everything. And it's hard to know right now what will solve this or, or how it will return with time.
5: Have people, Dr. Merley, have people studied the role of Paxlovid, which is thought of as a short-term treatment right after infection? Mm-hmm. Do people that take Paxlovid, are they likely to have lower, long COVID? And does that even make a stronger argument for therapeutics that, or each, both taking therapeutics and maybe at this point of the pandemic, we need a larger investment even in therapeutics?
1: Yeah, so I have two big questions around Paxlovid. One is among people who take it during their acute infection, presumably this is reducing the load of the virus for the patient, clearing it faster. Could that reduce the risk of long COVID? And then the second is with theories around viral persistence, potentially, that's, that's one of the hypotheses of long COVID, viral persistence and hiding in areas of the body. Could you treat that with Paxlovid? And and we're interested in both questions. And there's right now study proposals being reviewed as part of one of the large NIH studies. And one of the things that we've proposed, and I think many others have brought up, is studying Paxlovid as a treatment for long COVID and also both preventative during acute infection as well as for people who have persistent symptoms months out. And it, it's, it seems possible biologically based on some of the evidence that there could be persistent virus and components of the virus that may be helped by Paxlovid.
2: Dr. Meli, can you say just a little bit more about this viral persistence idea? This is—it sounds like one of the mechanisms that you guys are hypothesizing is behind long COVID. What is it exactly? Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. So um, that was a natural question because there there are other viruses that do remain in your body after having the infection. Um, and are naturally cleared out, even though the acute severe infection wanes. Um, Some of the studies looked at collecting patients' stool, their bowel movements, for months, seven plus months after they had infection, and testing it for the RNA that's contained in the virus, and they found that that's present um, in some patients. So that was what pointed people in the direction of exploring this. Others have looked at the component on the outside of the virus called the spike protein, one of the proteins, the pieces on the outside of the virus in some patients, and found that recently among patients with long COVID, a fair percentage of them have this spike protein circulating even over a year after having the infection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what's led people to be interested in this virus theory. I would say the direct evidence is from things like autopsies. If someone dies from COVID-19 and you can examine to see if the virus is in parts of their body. Most of those people unfortunately die early after having the infection. So we haven't seen good evidence that it's in the brain. Although we see lots of inflammation in the brain, the immune system is affecting the brain. Um, It's in the typical places that you would expect. So it's, that's not a, it's an unanswered question, but one that's being actively investigated right now, the viral persistence question. Mm-hmm.
5: Can you tell us, uh, Dr. Merley, how easy it is to... Because there's two parts to your job, right? I mean, you actually practice medicine, right? And you're also mm-hmm. a researcher. How easy is it to take theories and things you want to test and actually experiment and test them in the field? I mean, obviously, you need to you know, ask for, I, I don't even know what it means to ask for permission. Like we have to ask for permission when we do studies and we don't do studies on physical patients, et cetera, in that way. So how easy can you translate research ideas? Even let's imagine today, Cade said something you're like, that's a damn good idea. How could you actually go and test that? Yes. So we, the good thing is we have, there are so many pe- people who are affected
1: by this are so engaged in finding answers and and willing to participate. So we have a lot of great partnerships with patients. Actually testing, for example, a treatment like Paxlovid is, is challenging because it's, that's a new drug that's under just emergency authorization for acute COVID. It's not a small feat to try to do a study that is outside of that approval. It, we, uh, we use other, many other medications already in the clinic for the symptoms and the aspects of long COVID, even though they haven't been studied, things that we know affect, improve your sleep and stimulate your wakefulness and energy, um, things that we have used for other conditions. So I think we could start small studies of those fairly quickly. What we're hoping to do through the National Institutes of Health is start large nationwide studies of those things, Mm -hmm. because we have an existing collaborative throughout the country of, of centers that have been awarded grants to study this in partnership with each other. Right now we're just describing the biology of long covid, we're testing patients in detail to understand what could explain this and the in the coming months hopefully the upcoming step is to start to test treatments on a larger scale. Mm-hmm.
2: Great. Dr. Maley, we know we're going to need to let you go shortly. What I just heard you say is the the thing we're most interested in is trying to figure out what causes this, which is reasonable. I, I think we might have guessed that, but it's interesting to hear you say it's still that open. And then you also mentioned treatments. Let me flip it around as we wrap up here. What is it you think we know about long COVID and what does the population at large need to understand about long COVID. And let me bring one, one specific element back to you. Tell us again, I know this is ridiculously precise, but again, your best estimate, you gave us these two UK studies, but they had different prevalence rates three to 7% and 10 to 15. If you had to put a number on it, roughly the, the probability someone contracts long COVID if they have COVID at all, What do you think that number is? And then other things you think we know at this point about long COVID.
1: So I think the probability of someone three months out having some persistent symptom that's new after COVID is probably in the 15 to 20% range, though the severity of that could really vary. It could be someone that's debilitating fatigue and someone who just doesn't quite feel the same, but they're functioning well. I think once you go beyond six to 12 months, I would bet the UK statistics are much more accurate where it gets into single digits of people. It's still a huge number of people because almost the entire world has had COVID-19. But it's it's probably closer to the UK statistics of that, like 5 to 10% range. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, there's a wide severity. People who say, I, I'm still kind of short of breath running around versus people who can barely walk because they're short of breath.
3: Mm-hmm. I think Adi is trying to clarify something. Yeah, I guess the reason why I say that is that, I mean, I know... Countless people who have who've had COVID and everybody does. And I don't think I have that many people who I know who've had who have long term COVID symptoms. So either they're very sufficiently mild that they're not telling me, um, uh, which is quite possible, I suppose, or that number just is a gross overestimate.
2: Or your demographic is yeah.
3: Bad. <laughs> right. And by right. the way, Adi, I know I know, I uh,
5: I know. People, that I know at least, I mean, this is, we'll just talk small sample sizes. We're talking self-selected samples. I know at least 10 to 15 people that have long COVID symptoms and have had them for a long period of time into into the, you know, 18 months to two years. And people of all different demographics, people with comorbidities, not. I don't know whether Dr. Maley's number is right or not right. All I'm saying is you say you don't know people. I know plenty.
2: Hold well, on, I, mean, I know, I, I know, doctor, I know a
3: doctor. I
2: know a doctor studying this stuff explicitly, and he's looked at, he's done the studies yeah. and read the research.
3: Right? Yeah. Well, no I idea. mean, the reason why is, I mean, you want to get a sense of how it actually plays out, and this is we're at a time where almost everyone has had at least, right. uh, I mean, seventy percent, I think, is what we're estimating of the population, and that right. ranges of course by age. It's
2: actually an interesting question, like casual mm-hmm. empiricism. How many would you need to know in order to detect a five percent prevalence? reliably and it's going to be hundreds and so it's going to be not only asking querying who you know but like asking each of them of the people they know and maybe at that point you can have a sample that's large enough I'm, I'm gonna guess
1: but that's so, a lot yes yeah, I, th- I think it gets to the challenge actually of truly of, of knowing how common also because when even the surveys that are well done in terms of sampling will ask about a select set of new symptoms they don't ask do you have debilitating fatigue or do you feel off from what you were before? And there's a huge spectrum to that. So I think when I have conversations completely non-medical with people, almost universally, when they find out I'm involved in long COVID, they mention someone they know who has it, which makes me think to some degree it's it's around the range of the estimates we're seeing, but it could be many of those people have mild symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what you read about in news stories, severe debilitating symptoms, we see a lot in our clinic, but overall is much less common. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, last chance to Dr. Maley. We've been waiting for someone like him to come along for a while. We got to let him go. We got anything else? We can't promise not to call you again, Dr. Mailey.
1: Okay, (laughs) feel free to.
2: (laughs) Thank you for the time. Thank you for the work. Really appreciate your setting aside. Um, a a few minutes to talk with us about this stuff.
1: Thanks so much for having me, guys. Great talking with you.
2: Absolutely. Dr. Jason Maley, he is an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. He's an attending physician at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center there in Boston, and he studies long COVID, among other things. Gentlemen, um, we're going to let Dr. Maley go. He's got a child to pick up. Want to quick get some reactions from y'all before we go to break. Um, Anything jump out to you anything you want to kick around anything we heard from dr Maley that provoked you a little bit
3: well I, one of the things that i'm that i'm actually quite curious about is the role of politics in in people's views on on the prevalence of long covid obviously that shouldn't affect the science but it could potentially affect how people think about it and talk about it. And, and I'm just, I mean, this is something that'll play out over time. And I'm actually curious to see how that sort of develops. I mean, cause Eric is just, is describing an experience that's, that's, I mean, I know people who've had, who have long COVID, but it's very, very small single digit. Um, and Eric's describing, you know, f- three, five times that. And, and is that personality? Is that the kinds of people we know is that the age group, or is it people don't talk to me to complain about their health because they know I don't give a shit. I mean, <laughs> anyway, I'm just throwing it. And, and, and are those the reasons that explain why people's experiences seem to be quite variable on the subject? And, and matters because it really affects how people behave, particularly going forward.
2: How, how do you think about the tension between your personal experience? I mean, this is something we all have to reconcile. What yeah. we experience anecdotally as we go through the world and then what we read about. And so you get a study... These are serious people. Maybe there are multiple studies, reasonable samples, and it may or may not accord with what we're experiencing as we go through life. You're a scientist. How do you reconcile those things?
3: Well, you are asking me, uh, uh, Taylor. Yeah, all of yeah. us. I mean,
2: all of us have had that experience. I think one, one we we should have the posture that we privilege studies over our anecdotal experience, I think, as a starting place. Well, but then, of course, uh, we're of looking course, to, rec- they, to, to decrease any dissonance between the two. I understand that. Sorry, go
3: ahead. Adi, when, sorry. We, when we were dealing with COVID in its early stages, we, when nobody knew anyone, when COVID infections itself were pretty rare, then you had to go with the, with the studies. But as someone who, is, who who's consults on constructions of surveys and, try and collects data as statisticians, I know how hard this is to do in the actual field. It's so brutally hard to do, and that when you see, uh, when you read the actual articles put together by the CDC or published in various places, the first thing as a statistician I go is, come on, this isn't representative. The sample isn't representative, or this survey has major non-response issues. You're essentially appealing for people who have long COVID to respond to your survey. Um, so you maybe look at- that,
2: that's, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I love it, and we should all be that that skeptical of science in general, especially with when you're methodologically familiar, I will say, shouldn't you bring the same skepticism to your own reflection on your anecdotal experience?
3: Oh, it's terrible. Of course, my anecdotal experience is terrible, um, and I can't make any th- prognostications about you know. Try to make it about populations as, as a whole, and so I'm wondering. Like you ma- mentioned, like Shane and Eric mentioned, I'm I'm my the people that I know are probably much more similar to me in either age, age of my mm-hmm. children, um, age of my siblings, health, and age. Um, you know, my 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 parents long ago passed away. I don't have an elderly cohort of relatives that I know and or their friends either, which means that I'm very censored. It's hard hard to say that I'm representative. And so and so when I talk about it, I'm thinking about it in terms of um, the, you know, Shane's question earlier, which is that 15 to 20 percent. How does that really change among those different groups or is it just a constant flat thing overall? And mm. and those questions, I think, are still unanswered. But I do want to push the, the idea. That and I've, we've heard this from from us. We discussed this. Is that is that how you behave going forward? And we're about to start. And I talked about it last week. I think it's coming a really big BA five wave here in this country, um, and uh, which we're seeing in Europe and we've seen this uh, other places. And how do you react to those to those that impending um, surge again? When we're we know because we've been tracking it, the deaths and hospitalizations, ICUs are still low, and they're going to cont- stay low. Yeah. Um, and a lot, and then that leaves kind of open on the, on the, on the, on the playing field is long COVID.
2: Yep. 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 So I, that's, I, I, I'll, we'll come back to that. Cause that, that does seem to be the actionable question on the table.
5: I was just going to answer when you asked Kate, so how, what do I do when my personal experience doesn't coalesce or, you know, how do you act, you know, assimilate all this all together? I was going to joke and say a clustered mixed binomial model, which <laughs> means I don't, the people I know are not independent of each other. So there's a cluster of correlation between them. Secondly, Adi's rate could be- Real real
2: quickly, so practically, that would mean you would downweight the sample.
5: They're not- I I would not just downweight the sample, but his, Adi could know 1,000 people. I could know 1,000 people. His rate could be two out of 1,000. My rate could be that I know is 15 out of 1,000. Those aren't inconsistent with a heterogeneous distribution. That's what I meant by mixed. And it's not inconsistent with clustered. The people that Adi knows may be more likely to all be not have long COVID. and The people I know may be more likely. So that's what I was joking. I was giving you literally a one-line statistical answer to why Adi's data and my data are not inconsistent with this number.
4: Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I I think, that, I mean, honestly, Eric, I mean, what you're describing, I think is very, stati- very statistically interesting way to model it, but it's gotta be like second or third or like the correlate accounting for the correlations of the fact that the, the people that you all know know each other is like, I think dwarfed by just the, the continued nebulousness of what the outcome is here. The outcome measure is like, you know, again, long COVID. I mean, honestly, it was so helpful to have this conversation with the, a doctor that could kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what are established sort of symptoms and what are the kind of more dramatic symptoms? Like, you know, obviously oppressive fatigue a year out is not nebulous at all as a, as a symptom, but you know, some of these other things that, you know, we associate among our friends with long or friends describe as long COVID symptoms to us, anxiety, depression, all these things. I mean, how the, how, how do you norm those? Relative to the control group of like, you know, the last two years, but not having, you know, long COVID. Yep. And so but- I, I think those kind of like, again, I, I think the before we even start really digging into like a very sophisticated model of some of this, like, you know, of, of these long COVID outcomes, I think we have to very very specifically and kind of precisely define what the outcome.
5: And, is. and I was very pleased that Dr. Maley said that at least two or three yeah. times during yeah. his talk. No, it it's great. not, there's no, it's not a supervised learning thing where it's an obvious binary. You've got long COVID you don't. And I I'm so glad he said that it's an interesting statistical problem, as you know, Shane, but it's also just the realities. And also I take your critique of what I said correctly, which is, What I'm suggesting is definitely not the first order effect. I agree with that. Even what is it? How do you define it? It's going to be a multidimensional set of outcomes. I think that has to be understood first before we try to even understand heterogeneity, correlation, all this other stuff. Well, I, I agree with that.
2: Gentlemen, I'm probably most interested in hearing your takeaways from this thing, but we're a little bit out of time. So I'm going to let that sit for now. We'll come back to it on a future show and talk about, okay, what's our current personal takeaways on long COVID. I think we got some good material to work with in the last half hour. All right, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go, a little more sports-minded in those three quarters. Come back and join us after the break.
5: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Hope Crew is in here. We just had a Long interview and a debrief of that interview about long COVID. Overdue conversation about long COVID with an actual expert, not just amongst ourselves. We'll do some more takeaways on that conversation in future weeks. We want to get into some sports, but we want to give you a chance to jump in here. You guys know you can get us. Best way is on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. You can also write us email. We have a mailbag via email. It is at at moneyballatwharton.upenn.edu. Whether by Twitter or by email, we always love to hear from you. Criticism, comments, suggestions, praise, love, whatever you got, send it our way, Uh, especially on that mailbag. We we, we look at everything you send. We get as much as we can on the air, but we look, read, share everything you guys send our way. All right, guys, we've got a tight little Q2 here. I'm curious in the world of sports and this sleepy dog days of summer, even baseball is taking a break right now. What has your eye in the world of sports?
5: Well, I mean, just quickly, I, you know, was the British Open just happened. Uh, Cam Smith won the British Open, which was, and the reason why it's a little surprising is let's be clear. There were two players ahead of him going into the last round, but they were both four shots ahead of him. And, you know, one of my, I've always said this before, one of my favorite statistical papers, I believe it's by George Casella was about, you know, how far back are you really? Because it's, you know, it's some combination of how far back you are and the number of teams or players ahead of you. And so it's not only he had to catch up four strokes, but he had to catch up four strokes to two players. That's not that easy to do, first of all. Um, And secondly, we again, you know, I think we've pointed this out. Tiger Woods going into the lead in a final round overall in his career is something like now 49 wins and two losses. Um, He's never lost a major going into the final round, tied or leading. And now McElroy seems to have, I know he's done it twice in the last four. I also remember the masters when he shot 80 in the final round a couple of years ago. I mean, he hasn't won a major now in eight years. And so you say, well, what's it? I mean, 8 years he had won 4 by age 25 and he stuck on 4. So at some point we have to talk about both the accomplishment of Cam Smith, Cameron Smith, but we also have to talk about Roy McIlroy has too many non-wins, conditional, let me be clear, conditional on the number of top finishes that he's had.
2: Well, we that's a question, a hypothesis that can be pursued empirically. I'd love to hear see research on it. It raises this question that I've always found interesting in, in golf. And that is n- norming someone's accomplishments for the competition they faced. So there's a big difference between losing on, you know, giving it away on Sunday versus having it taken away from you. And I think this last weekend's tournament was much more an example of someone taking it away though. Rory, I mean, he did, putts didn't drop. We know that there's a lot of luck in putting, like a lot of luck in putting and Rory didn't get any luck. And then here comes Cam Smith, who had like 12 putts on the back nine, which is just craziness. I, I would love to see, you know, some people have great tournaments and they just they happen to have it on a day that somebody else has a great day. And there are other tournaments where they just fall back to the crowd. It's their fault. And I've never seen a good rigorous analysis of that. I do want to share with you, because I chased down these numbers, you're talking about the probabilities. On Sunday morning, the probabilities, because Rory was sitting there tied at first with the four-stroke lead over the, over the field.
5: With Victor Hovland, I, by the way, with, not with yeah. Cam Smith, just to be right. clear.
2: Right, so Ho- Hovland, also a very good golfer. And so you might ask what the chance of his winning the tournament should have been. The, the markets had it right around 50%. I asked Rufus Peabody, who is known as a big golf better, and he's a quantitative guy, and obviously. And um, he liked Rory a little more than the field, and he liked Cam Smith. He was shorting Cam Smith the whole time, the tournament. So his numbers are a little bit different from the market, but the, but they're not going to be that different to give you a sense of the empirical probabilities by the best golf modelers out there, Rory was, you know, 50% or maybe a shade more. And Cam Smith was sitting down there like three, four, 5% chance. That's what happened on Sunday. That's how big that comeback was from Cameron Smith.
3: I, I have to say I, I wasn't, I mean, I'm generally not on top of the golf, but I saw the Twitter conversation about the probability that the, 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 the top two were going to win. And it was overwhelming. And all I was thinking is, Oh, boy. Rare events in probability modeling is hard. And <laughs> right. when some, something has nearly zero probability, that's when I want to start betting. <laughs> because those things, as we typically see, are, are more overrated. Can I ask a, um, a question? Last show, we talked about the chance that someone wins from the top 10. So was Cam Smith in the top 10?
5: Oh, yeah. He was. Uh, oh, wait. You oh, the the world, pre- pre- do you mean no, he oh, he no, in-, in the world? Or do
2: you mean the betting odds before the tournament started. I believe he was, yes. I don't okay. know. Yes,
5: yes, I don't know. for sure. Because he played really well at the U.S. Open as well. As a matter of fact, he was second or third at the U.S. Open as well. He lost to Fitzpatrick, I think, right at the end. Uh, so he's definitely one of the top uh, top golfers in the world. What's also interesting is this
2: uh, – Well, hold on, hold on. I mean, let's just do it because we had the odds in the rundown last week. We had him – not we, but the the world had him about ninth favorite. At 2500, um, t- 250 to one. Um, and I mean, 25 to one. What's well, well,
5: right here. It's in there. It rundown. The implied probability yep. is about 4%. Yeah. 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 By the way, just, you know, it's also, Kate, would be interesting if we're going to do the study that you requested, which is a good one. Is it possible that two guys playing together, meaning Hobland and McElroy, they're not making putts is correlated with each other? You know, people always talk about this in golf, whether it's true or not. People talk about you know this this pairing is just not you know the putts yeah. are not dropping today. And then you start you don't see the putts going in of your partner, your not your teammate, the, your competitor. Yours are not going in. So I wonder also if that makes the odds of that you know three percent that Cam Smith could come back. Maybe it's not so low because both of them could have a bad day if it's correlated.
2: So Eric, you're a golfer, and I suspect part of your hypothesis there is coming from felt, felt experience where it feels like, you know, sometimes you drag each other down and sometimes you elevate each other. You know, it's a tough thing to study, right? Because conditions vary so much in golf. And so how do you separate the impact of one person's performance on the others from the impact of the local weather conditions. I'd have to, well, We'll I'd have have to condition
5: on that. I'd have to look at pairings that are near each other in time so that the weather conditions were similar, right? The other thing is you could make, it's an easy argument just from a practical perspective, which is my competitor is putting so poorly. I'm not learning from his putts. And so you could – I mean, there's an actual argue you could make. Forget statistics just for a second. I'm counting on the other person's putts to learn the breaks near the hole. If he's not making them, how is that helping me?
4: Well, I mean, and us, he's, I mean, I, I think you can learn a lot from the break of a putt, even if it's not str- – you know, I, I mean, like – Maybe, maybe you learn in, more, in the opposite you learn more direction or a- like. I mean, obviously, obviously, you you know, you're not going to – if a putt is particularly poor, you're not going to learn about what the break is near the hole. But I think you'll
5: kind of get a lot of uh, – a lot of information off of even, even poor putts contributed some information. And by the way, just quickly, right after he won the British Open, he didn't announce it. But there's an extremely high probability Cam Smith is leaving for Live Golf. Yeah. And so he was asked about that in the uh, interview afterwards. He didn't deny it. Um, and let me just say, um, he won a lot more money than just the amount for the British Open, if that's true. because I guarantee you, if his agent's any decent, he's, his asking price to move to Live Golf has just gone up a lot. But that would yeah, be a severe blow to the PGA if he were to leave. Uh, they're also talking about now Matsuyama Hideki Matsuyama, the first Japanese winner of the Masters. Talking about him leaving. Uh, Bubba Watson, two-time Masters winner. So
2: Bubba's top, more the profile of the first defectors, though. Correct. He's a little bit out, of, out of aging out a little bit, and then the, yeah. But
5: just to let you know, if the guys leave, if the guys leave who they say might leave there will be 35 of the top 100 within two weeks that will now be playing live golf. Now, I agree it's not the top 10 so much except for Cam Smith, but other than that, um, there's another wave coming.
2: It's 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 notable. It is. I mean, Cam, Cam Smith is Australian, and so there may be a better connection to Greg Norman, maybe more susceptible, but there's no getting around that there's momentum that direction. One last observation on golf that I thought was interesting is that the last six major winners were in their 20s. So Cam, 28 years old. Before that, um, well, whatever, we go back to the last six. All these guys have been, the oldest, I think, might've been Justin Thomas at 29, but it's been 100 years. Adi always asks the question, like, norm that for me. Will you? some version of norm that for me. Well, here's a norm for you. That hasn't happened since like 1921 to 1923, something like that. So good young group. Unfortunately, it sounds like they may uh, end up playing on different tours in the near future, but it's kind of fun to have that many 20 somethings out there playing that well, gentlemen, we've got a couple more minutes. What else top of mind on, um, around the world of sports.
4: I watched the home run Derby. It was enjoyable, but I think it's, it's gone down I, I hate the new format where it's just, you know, the number of like, you know, it's just the number of pitches you can throw. I like the old format better where they had 10 outs and then they were, you know, you just kind of keep going until that. Um, I just, I found it very tough to kind of, you know, the, the cameras weren't even able to kind of track the balls. So the new balls were in the air before the old balls landed well, and everything like that.
3: Can, can I respond? I actually like the new format, but that's breaking the rules. And there seems to be a lot of creeping um, breaking of the rule. Yep. They're not allowed to throw the ball until the ball is landed. Um, and they're increasingly just fudging that. And it's surprising to me that they're not, you know, they're not, there's no in, interference to, to stop it. And also
5: just quickly in a few seconds we have left, um, I don't love – I like it for theatrics point of view, the pairwise design where people play against each other. But I'd rather just have the eight people go, the top four advance, and then this – Kate talks about this all the time. I like this hybrid system where the first round maybe is just you know who hits the most, the four advance, and then pair off after that. I don't like the pairwise design from the beginning. I don't oh, like I love it the hybrid.
2: All. Give me the hybrid anytime. Just out of creativity. I
5: gave you the credit. I said, <laughs> this is I'm This <laughs> the Cade Massey hybrid system. I don't even like well, the, the pairwise. I think it should just yeah, be like, you,
2: you know, total
4: cumulative, maybe a couple rounds to give them some rest.
2: Our buddy, Ron Yurko was with you. He was whinging yeah. about it online, but I, I, I like the head to head for any, I, I like it to be decided on the field. Even if you have to give up a little bit on tapping the best overall, just for the drama of it. All right, guys, that has been another quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
5: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Q3. Rolling into the second half now. Still got the whole crew in here shane eric Adi. this is cade coming off of a little uh ho- a little golf talk a little home run derby talk we're we have a big interview coming up with uh am more on baseball more on baseball in fact come off that home run derby thing i'm going to broach something with you guys pardon i saw that your catcher sorry shane the yankees seem to be the wharton moneyball team of the moment if the Sox were having a good year we might be able to put the Sox in that spot but i mean it's a, I mean it's very
4: on brand for to just go with the front runners that, that that is the yankee move
2: well we should be on with like we should be a Rays team or something that's that's oh, guardians. gross I'd ra- I'd guardians i'd rather i'd rather be
4: the yankees almost Ugh.
2: let's go guardians i'm a, i'm a, i can get on board with the guardians low low smart low budget but the yankees catcher jose trevino in the all-star game tonight we're recording tuesday afternoon games tonight home run derby was last night and i saw this there's a nice piece on him in the times today they referred to his pitch framing we've talked about pitch framing a little bit on here over the years Audi's done some stuff on it and i just wanted to use him as an example to kind of remind myself what this pitch framing was how big a deal it was and how, how much is he really differentiated from others so i just want to talk this through and i want to make sure i'm thinking about it right so let me just walk through my understanding of it and um and let's use it as a reminder of what pitch framing is so this is this this thing that catchers start doing where they pull errant balls into the strike zone and they and the ones who are good at it are able to increase the rate of strikes basically and this happens it only happens on the margins of the plate a lot of pitchers are obvious strikes. Some pitchers are obvious balls. Can, can I
4: just have a clarification as you go along? They don't actually pull the ball into the strike zone. They move their glove such that the umpire is fooled into thinking it was in the strike zone.
2: Well, they can't. They have to catch it after it's passed the strike zone. Exactly. So
4: it's, so it's not the like they make a ball a strike. Yeah, they don't, they, they just, don't make. This is all based on umpire
3: incompetence. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I right, also Let me just add two things before. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes, yes, Shane is correct. But first first of all, they also, move, they also don't move their glove. It's the way they, they position their body. And again, it's, yeah. it's to fool the, the umpire to, into thinking that the ball was thrown in the strike zone when it really wasn't. Um, it's not new. Um, what's new is the ability to quantify.
5: I was about to say, I just wanted to build on what Shane and Adi just said. Remember in the first quarter of our show, we had our guest on, uh, and we were talking about long COVID. It's hard to measure this or that. The good news about this, there is essentially no debate on whether it was actually a strike because we can measure that and there's no debate clearly i said Just kind of measure that adi mm-hmm. and there's no debate about whether it was called a strike that certainly we know so this is actually something that is very well measurable from that point of view so that's why i like this measure and it does tie to what we talked about earlier in the show
2: yeah yeah all right. So the action happens in what they call the shadow zone, which is the edge of the plate, kind of a, a ball width in the strike zone and a ball width outside the strike zone. And it turns out that a very high percentage of pitches actually go through the shadow zone. So and that's the interesting bit. In fact, we've seen research from some colleagues on how that's where the ambiguity is. And so umpire biases exist in the shadow zone. they don't exist. Well,
3: I'd love to clarify, pitchers are throwing at the shadow zone, right? Because yes, of course. If of course. The, yeah. If it's in the strike zone, it gets clocked. And if it's outside the strike zone, it's a ball. <laughs> so, or, right. if,
4: or if it's not in the shadow zone, it's likely a, the ball, whether it was a ball or strike is moot because it's been hit. Yeah. Into like out of the stadium I, or like.
3: Case
5: points important though, because you know, lots of things can have an, an effect size, but if the N is small, then you don't worry about it as much. So what Cade's talking about is really important. This is a big and potentially big effects situation. And so that's why I'm glad you brought up that it happens. Or as my colleague, Wes Hutchinson, used to say, don't tell me about uh, uh, watch out for sharks if there aren't lots of sharks. (laughs) Large effect sizes are fine, but if they happen one out of 10 trillion times, then it's not as exciting.
2: Yeah, I I didn't quite have the intuition that it was as high a percentage. I I believe, so I'm looking at a site, Baseball Savant. Baseball Savant is tracking this, among other things. And they have Trevino catching 1,340 pitches. I think these would be non-swing pitches. And of those non-swing pitches, 60% are in this shadow zone. So more than half are on the edge of the plate, basically. And so this is the place where it's ambiguous enough that action can take place. So they, they let me jump to the standings. Trevino gets credit for eight, what they call catcher framing runs. He creates through his pitch framing, eight runs for his team so far through the season.
5: How many and wins I, is that, Adi? Adi, yeah, I always ask you, eight runs is worth About, about 10 runs is a win.
2: Okay, so he's coming up on a win at the halfway point of the season, and it's two above the next guy's down there, six. The average, of course, is zero, and the worst pit catcher in the league, should we name this person? Bottom. The bottom catcher's nine. Oh, Oreo, my Oreo's down in Baltimore. Their catcher's minus nine strikes. So this is
4: for – for,
2: Don't, mean, don't fault him run. for
4: the honesty run. of not cheating.
2: <laughs> no man, this is an no, edge. It's a legitimate edge. It's cheating. not cheating. It's not cheating. Part but of the game. So, well, yeah, so but it's not an inherent
4: part of the game. It, it, right. it is entirely based on the the kind of the fiction mm-hmm. that we that inaccurate calling of balls and strikes is still okay. That must be a part of the game.
5: So, Kate, do you think this is something that will be stable over time? Like if we measure Trevino for the next eight to 10 years, will he always be, let's forget, let's pretend that uh, automatic umpiring doesn't come into baseball. As a matter of fact, I'm taking it from you, kay You've always asked one of these things, like some things just have mean reversion. Some things don't repeat year after year. Then, do you think pitch framing is a skill that actually will persist over time?
2: Another version of the question is like you can rank anything, and and we and we, right. we we rank them, and all of a sudden we start reading meaning into who's one and who's two and who's bottom, and you need to always ask the question of how persistent those rankings are. And I, I don't know. I'm not trying to make anything of Trevino's game. I love your question. Adi probably knows more about the persistence of pitch framing effects.
3: It is uh, it is persistent, but it's not nearly as persistent as you'd imagine it could be uh, because the 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 the. Uh, Framing value is highly, highly uncertain. The standard error on the framing value is actually quite large. Matt um, might be changing. Uh, one thing that I do know, and I mentioned this, I just drew, put my fingers together to indicate that it isn't perfect, but the StatCast was a TrackMan-based system. Um, had about a half an inch of error, which uh, at the shadow zone, it's actually not, not trivial, yeah. uh, but, but uh, maybe even an inch, but um, half a ball's width, which is about an inch. Um, but the Hawkeye system is much better.
2: OK. Um,
3: and so and the reason why that matters is that the idea is you're stealing a strike. you got to know what a strike, whether it's a true yeah. strike or not. That's right. And right. At that's the right. edges, the old system had enough. You know, there's some error there and in, in those uh, right at the border. And so you can look at the camera and go, that's outside the zone. But actually, that's just an estimate. Right. OK, so
2: maybe with the more precise measurement, we'll see. We might,
3: have a, we might have a better value of it. But uh, but let also, me... part of the issue is that the umpires themselves are the bad ones. And there's some umpires that are just crap. That's and right. They're the ones who, and if you get more opportunity with yeah, their fires,
2: that's exogenously determined. They, they, they live yeah. with, that's a really good point. That's a factor that's going to push towards mean regression. Um, guys, I just wanted to make it a little bit more concrete that they, they, they give one eighth of a run per strike. That's their, on average, it pushes around with park effects and stuff, but one eighth of a run per strike. And so that translates into 64, just make it a real concrete. Trevino has converted 64 more ambiguous pitches to strikes than the average catcher in the league that, and he's, he's five percentage points better than the next people. Like it's, it's a, he's head and shoulders, at least according to the stats so far. Just this Just
5: to be clear, Kate, if we wanted to, we, could, we don't have to use like a blunt instrument like that. We could actually look at the situations by which he's created an extra strike. And then Adi could tell us how many expected runs
2: that's right. have actually going that, down. That's so right. We could so
5: be I'm, more sophisticated I, I, than I'm that.
3: hundred percent.
2: So I'm, being, I'm just working with the aggregates for a second. I'm just real quickly, and I'm going to let this one go. I just wanted to understand the frequency and in concrete terms, what it means that these guys separate. And I'm kind of blown away by it. it's 64 more strikes than the average catcher how many games have they played they played half a season so they must have played 80 games it's not even one strike a game that he's better than the average and he's head and shoulders above the average it's just it's interesting to me that such as the, the the margins are so small i guess i'm sorry adi right, go ahead
3: well a couple of things first of all the paper that i wrote with samir tishpanda about this we did just what what eric is describing we didn't value a strike at, at just one eighth eight strikes to a run we did it by situation and the reason yeah. why that's important is umpires are actually hugely situationally dependent that's right they're much better at zero zero count on the uh, um on the first pitch than they are in three and oh and oh and two well let's just read let's just
2: recount that real quick because Gray green our colleague has great research on that and my memory of it is that it's always in this ambiguous zone again the shadow zone yeah umpires don't like to end the at bat on a called play and so they're less likely to call a strike when there's two strikes, and they're less likely to call a ball when there's three balls. Do I have that right? That's, That's the way in which they're biased.
3: That's true. What the cause of that is is still up to debate. Uh, one obviously, Aton's uh, argument is that it has to do with psychology. They don't want to. They don't want to be the one that decides the outcome. They want to let that happen by the batter uh, or the the natural occurrence of events.
2: He probably tells a more Bayesian story because he always wants to kind of rationalize things that others would consider to be a bias and so the, the the pitchers are in fact less likely to throw uh another ball after three balls right and so a bayesian might
5: of course that's right might do construe an you, ambiguous can i have a dream here shane do you think oh, this is specifically for i'll you. tell this you my dream. dream. Forget, <laughs> i know but forget the automatic yeah. umpire for a second do you think do you think there's a possibility going forward where, like, just like the umpire has something in his pocket where he keeps track or she keeps track of balls and dice, where something could go off if the Hawkeye says it's a strike and then the umpire could decide what to do with it? Well,
4: they, and that, in that con- why don't they just
5: call it a strike? I mean, so the umpire still has the- <laughs> to be like, no, fuck that. No, but I'm just saying, i i look, I'd love, I'd be fine with automatic umpiring, but I'm just commenting, maybe as an in- interim point, we could, ju- even if it was just, well, I Maybe mean, we just could still to give t- them
4: their same salary just to relay the, you know, information. Like, they could be the one that announces it just as a ball and strike. We don't have a robotic voice do that or something like that. And they can still be employed. I mean, they're still going to be employed anyway. There's a ton of, like, non-automatable kind of call, judgment call. They'll still be able to influence games with all kinds of judgment calls. It's just this one is so... We know exactly how to do it. It's so funny that we're like, how do we model this, like, you know, difference between the observed and the actual? We have the actual. We know what we know incredibly right. accurately right. we'll what is there. a we'll, a ball.
2: We'll get, it's an imperfect world. We're working to repair the yeah. world. We'll, we'll get there eventually. Adi, we want to hear about Wharton Moneyball Summer Camp. You're in week two, I believe. You're halfway through the three-week journey.
3: Yes. And it's, what's the latest from down there? It's it's one of the most um, uh, enjoyable part of my job as a as a teacher uh, is to teach the uh, the high school students because they're so enthusiastic and they know so much about sports. They're just learning about statistics and how to code, and they're just incredibly engaged for a very long day where they listen to me for nearly three hours, and then they have a coding session in the in the afternoon where they listen to our PhD students and our undergraduates. We train them to code in R and always in the middle, we get um, wonderful guests from the, the wide world of sports analytics who then come in and talk to them about their experiences. Now, usually we, when we, break it up. We have analysts from the teams. We have management from the teams. We have journalists, all kinds of different people. We had Annie Duke came in yesterday uh, she's oh, at, man. In, in decision-making and, and um, psychology all informed through her 18 years of being a world championship poker. Um, and she actually talked a little bit about, um, one of the things she talked about is Pete Carroll's decision to um, go for it with a, with a, um, with a, a pass uh, and, on the, uh, on one yard line against the Patriots in the Super I'm Bowl. I'm not sure Shane knows about that play. Maybe we should yeah, have yeah, to devote an, had an had entire had, show had, to it, but go ahead, but, Adi. But I but may have watched it about
4: uh, four times every week.
3: And, and we actually we had Chris Collinsworth who described, he actually called that play, in the Super Bowl as the dumb one of the dumbest calls he's ever seen. Mm-hmm. And he's actually backtracked that after buying Pro Football Focus. And he talks about how he's learned about analytics and he understands now that actually that was probably the right call. But one of our students asked Alec Hallaby and a really tra- actually an interesting question. He said so Al-
2: uh, Alec
3: So I should mention Alec Halby's recently promoted. He's uh, he's one of the assistant general managers of the Eagles. Um, and he kind of came up through being an analyst and r- running their research an analytics department at the Eagles, and he he came and spent an hour with our students. And one of the the question that was asked to him was, you know, there's a lot of trash talked against analytics among pro football managers, coaches, players, and and we like to sort of think about it as nonsense. Can you, Alec, tell me, give me the best version of that of uh, of that argument, and does it really have any any meat to it? And so, uh, Alec, I asked Alec, can he steel man the argument made against analytics in pro football?
2: So I love this. So it's the opposite of straw man, obviously. And you're asking him an analyst to articulate the strongest argument against his field, against his approach. So so how did he, he, this is super valuable. So what do he say?
3: But he basically said is that the game is too complex to be, to take any given specific situation and imagine you have enough data to describe it that you can rely on that judgment. In other words, so many things go into the calling of a play to executing a play, to deciding which play to choose in football in particular, that you don't have anything like it to go on. And that the idea that you can use past data to really tell you and, and, and to guide your decision-making a- a- alone is just not really gonna work. The, the Alex response was, and which is always good, which is that we don't use it alone. Al- analytics is just a, is one input to the decision-making process, it's never designed to be the only input into the decision-making process. He also said that there's a natural tendency to not want to adopt something that's going to potentially cost you your job. Speaking of umpires being against um, uh, decision-making, and that that's part of the the uh, the input. Accuracy and that relates to umpires that. are against the accuracy, Right, that's right. But It relates to the, the Pete Carroll decision to 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 uh, and the, this and to pass. Was that a bad decision? And, and the analysts would say that was a, it was a good decision. The anti-analysts would say that the data that you have historically just doesn't fully capture the situation at hand for which there's only one of them.
2: Well, that's super interesting. I mean, Alec is a thoughtful guy and he's in, been in this business for a long time. And so I think the, the awareness of the the arguments against and the weaknesses of the approach probably make him a better analyst. Um, and it's good, it's good for any of us to be able to articulate our opponent's views and it helps us understand where our weaknesses are and where our own biases are. Uh, super interesting. Um, well, that it's fun that you get this community into your students and it's great to get this kind of perspective from a wide range of people And Eric Eager, our buddy Eric is going to be in with you next week. We know. So keep on with that. Good luck with that. Have fun with it. Guys that has been three quarters. We've got an interview in our fourth quarter. We've got another segment coming up. So come back and join us after the break.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
2: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. We are rolling into the fourth quarter now and improbably, we've still got the whole team here. The whole crew, Audi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Massey. We're all going to do this final interview together. The fourth quarter has become our interview segment since we've been remote in the time of pandemic. This week, Kylie McDaniel, first time on the show, delighted to have Kylie. Kylie is an ESPN insider. He covers baseball and he has been on the inside of baseball. He's worked for in the front office for the Yankees, Orioles, Pirates, Braves, and now he is covering from the perspective of ESPN. Kylie, thanks for making time for us.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. Hopefully you can't hear the thunder and lightning going on behind me.
2: Well, down here in dry Texas, I'm jealous. Where are you, Kylie? Uh,
0: I just got home in Atlanta last night. I was in L.A. doing the broadcast for the draft, and then everybody stayed behind to do the home run derby, and I left to come home because my stuff's done.
2: <laughs> well, this I do feel like we're catching you in the wake of the biggest moment of the year for you, being the guy who covers prospects and the draft just winding up. Before we dive into that, Give us a little more of your background. How did you get started in this whole field? And what was your path to these clubs and then away from the clubs to ESPN?
0: So I guess the the name of your show is relevant because it basically all started when I read Moneyball as a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. I guess that was ooh, like 2003, I guess. Um, and wanted that was sort of like, I was thinking at that point, I wanted to get into sports. I was a nerd that was always uh not very good on the team but would try to be on every team collect baseball cards like fantasy baseball did like all that stuff wasn't quite sure if that would turn into a job or not my dad was an accountant i was decent with numbers so i was like oh there's gonna be something to do here and then i read moneyball and i was like oh you don't have to be good at the sport to work in this sport that's great timing now that i'm looking for internships and all that kind of thing so uh uh in my freshman year of college at UCF, I was in Tampa at the time coming back home to Tampa in the summers. That's where the Yankees like main office is yeah. at that point, because, uh, elder Steinbrenner was still around. Everything was in Tampa that didn't have to be in New York. So I bothered the guy that ran the Tampa office for about 18 months. And then I think it was after my sophomore year, he let me come in every summer for when you could still do unpaid internships back then. And the end of my third summer at the end of UCF, um, they gave me some free tickets to a Yankees game. And that was basically my payment for three summers of work. But <laughs> uh, my bosses became three agents. Uh, one of them was Billy Appler, who then became the GM of the angels and is now the GM of the Mets. And, uh, yeah, there, there were, there a lot of uh, heavy hitters in that office that I didn't realize at the time. So it was like all of my bosses went on to get, you know, promoted three times or whatever. From there, it was a long, long road of trying to get a full-time job. Couldn't get one. Did writing, went back and forth between internships and entry-level jobs and writing, in the process, I basically went to baseball grad school, learned how to do international, learned how to do scouting, expanded from just being the numbers guy that didn't know how to do anything. And then by the time I got to my late 20s, I landed at Fangrafts in a full time gig, partly that into an assistant director job with the Braves, where I was sort of doing a little bit of everything. It turned out that was not all it was cracked up to be. I went from there back to Fangrafts uh, <laughs> after the whole front office got cleaned out. And then my sort of one of my original mentors, Keith Laudy ESPN, switched over to the athletic that job at ESPN that I'd wanted for like 12 years became open. And I was like magically in the right spot at the right time to fill that role. And I've now been there for almost three years.
2: And how is it? So I think of it as prospects, but it must be more broad than that or it covers more than just that. What's what else is in the portfolio?
0: So it's like everything that's not the big leagues. So that's primarily like the top 100 minor league list. And then obviously the draft, they acquired the rights to broadcast the draft, like the month I was hired that they hadn't had had before. So it's obviously great. Uh, great luck that happened at the same time. So, you know, I have my sort of, you know, three or four hours on ESPN main where I get to just talk about guys. And they jokingly said it's the Kylie McDaniel broadcast where some of us also happen to talk about the draft because it's what I do year round and they do, you know, college baseball or it's Eduardo and ravage that do Sunday night baseball. This is not their focus. Um, They're also obviously bring a ton of expertise to it. Um, But then I also do some big league stuff. Like when it comes time to do um, free agent uh, predictions Uh, I reach out to the front office people, uh, since I guess uh, myself and Jeff Passon have a lot of uh, connections in that area. And I also do like ace rankings or, you know, graduated prospect rankings. So I do like, you know, maybe a quarter of what's relevant at the big league level, but then everything below it, which, as you mentioned before we came on the air, is a lot of players, and it is.
2: Well, let's we want to dive into that. I just want to make one comment about your career path. It strikes me as the mark of a healthy field that you can go back and forth between the teams and non-team jobs like that. I think for the longest time, only that'll kind of only happen in baseball. It, it's happened. We've seen it some in basketball. You don't see it much in football. You probably don't see it much in hockey. And I think that's part of, because the analytics community is so vibrant. And Yes. And,
0: you can very easily show that you're capable of doing it on the team side because we had so many of the numbers that are private are also public. So you can sort of demonstrate what you could do and the other sports were behind getting to the analytics level where you could actually demonstrate that it was so much eyeball stuff and you know institutional knowledge you couldn't get until you got on the team side so yeah that definitely helped somebody like me
2: so kylie for those who don't know the baseball draft give us the basic numbers because it is so fundamentally different from the other three major sports in the in north america (laughs)
0: Yeah. So broadly speaking, if you know a sports draft, it's probably football or basketball, where obviously the the college sport is followed very closely. They go immediately from that college sport to the big league version of their sport. Uh, And, you know, the top 10 or 12 picks, even like very casual viewers of watching a handful of March Madness games will know a couple of the players college football it's hard not to know the quarterbacks for the teams in the big bowl games that kind of thing with baseball it's like a minimum of two years for anyone to make it probably averages more three or four years for anyone to make it five for a lot of high school players um so there's that gap college baseball not quite as big as the other college sports so that's sort of like the uphill battle another thing we've been talking about a lot because it almost got fixed but hasn't yet is you can only trade some of the picks like I don't know 30 out of the (laughs) out of the hundreds and hundreds of picks um I think that would help tremendously if casual viewers could turn on the draft and be like oh a player I've heard of that I watched last night in the Yankee game got traded for a draft pick now I care about the draft pick it's harder to get people invested in that if it wasn't like a guy that just played in the College World Series like a month ago Mm -hmm. um and all the rumors that would come with that Jeff Passon sitting there interviewing people can break news all that kind of thing uh I believe I don't have it in front of me I believe first round picks it's like 50 50 that they like make the big leagues and hang around. For a few years. As you get further down the board, like third round, it's like, I think one third that they make the big leagues. And then once you get out the top three rounds and the million dollar bonuses, it's like, good luck if you ever even get to the upper minors, much less the big leagues. So, hey, how, many many lot rounds, of how many rounds are there? Well, uh, there are 20 rounds now. There used to be as many as 50 uh, in just the years I've been doing it. Um, and with the 20 rounds, like only 10 of them actually uh like sort of count toward the bonuses in a meaningful way and only like i said only like three or four of them actually really matter
1: okay. and sometimes
0: bonuses because you can't trade picks you can move bonuses around so you can give someone as much as you want as long as it fits within your bonus structure which is a hard number at any other pick but usually the top three four rounds is where that all happens
2: okay let me ask one more clarifying question and i'll open it up to the real baseball guys here Remind us in those top 2 or 3 rounds, what's the percentage breakdown of high school prospects versus college prospects that are being drafted?
0: So because that's the high school prospects have a lot of have a lot of negotiating leverage to go to college, uh, I think on talent it's basically 50/50 college and high school of actually getting drafted, it is less than that because it is pretty common for a high school kid to turn down like a million and a half, 2 million dollars and then go to school and sort of gamble that they will get more than that. So I believe it's like uh, almost two thirds to one third college to high school, uh, something like that. Once you get past this couple, first couple rounds where the bonuses are below a million dollars, it's dramatically more college than high school.
5: So Kylie, you talked to us about the probability a little bit of given you're drafted in the early rounds of making the big leagues, et cetera. But I want to stay even just within the draft. How well can you predict? Because one of the things we always talk about is the MLB draft is very uncertain. How well can you or anybody at the top predict who even is gonna be in the first round. Like football, we always hear like, you know, they get about twenty-eight out of thirty-two right. How about in baseball? Like can you predict who's gonna get forget which team necessarily, can you predict who's gonna be drafted round one, first couple rounds, etc cetera? And how well can you do? Uh
0: so I'm I'm looking at my sort of top thirty, seeing how many of them went in the top thirty picks. I think it's about like twenty-five or so. And a couple of those went later because they were they move them way down the board to get to a higher bonus. So they basically move their way out of the first round intentionally. Yeah. Like getting my list to match the first round in terms of the 30 players, that's actually not that difficult. That's sort of like picking the States for the president. Like only 10 of them are actually up for debate anyway. The other 40, you kind of get automatically Um, that part's not hard. The other thing that may be of interest to you guys uh, I've shared a number of stories over the last couple of years where the um a lot of former writers, as you referenced, are working in front offices. And one of the things they found is the rankings that the the informed media members that rank players for the draft, they're sort of taking all 30 teams' private rankings, they then get sort of shared through conversation and then molded together. And so, like a common view is the fifth, if you were to take the media. And make it one of the teams of the now 31 teams with the media added as one, they'd be like the 16th best team because they're Mm -hmm. averaging all the different teams together. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is the most numbers oriented organizations, they all have draft models now, Mm -hmm. but the most numbers oriented ones will integrate my rankings and mock drafts Mm -hmm. and some other ones as well. Although I like to think mine's one of the better ones into their draft model. So like mm-hmm. I've had stories told to me of numbers oriented teams where there's a two week period where like, you can't have private workouts. No games are being played. All the numbers have been run. There's no new information, but names are still moving on the board. And eventually the numbers guy had to admit they were moving because of my mock draft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's like a, yeah. That, so again, to say like, are my 30 close to the 30 in the draft? Like my 30 are sort of influencing the 30 in the draft a little bit. So they kind of have to be sort of similar.
2: Real quickly, you mentioned the numbers-oriented teams of the Major League Baseball teams. What percentage would you put in that category?
0: I mean, I guess if you're saying numbers-oriented in that they're one of the third that is most here, unlike sort of like cut it into thirds of like traditional numbers-oriented medium, it's always going to be 10, 10, and 10. I would say whatever like line you want to draw as to like, oh, in more than 50% of instances, more than 50% of their information is numbers. It's like probably close to 20 now. Um, whereas you know, at the, at the beginning code. of the Moneyball stuff, it was like, oh, it was one or two. Now it is the majority of the league.
2: Kyle, let me ask you a super practical question on this exact point. What percentage of the teams do you think set their board, the starting place, just the initial starting place from their model? <laughs>
0: it's funny you mentioned that, um. I've had conversations with scouts the last few years. I'm thinking of one I had this year where uh, certain, I would say maybe the foremost draft model numbers team there is, I won't say who it is. So I don't have to betray any sources will either start their board with the model spit out this order. All the scouts sit here. Now you argue, try to move somebody, but you can't move anybody more than like five spots. Cause the model can't be that wrong. That's one way yeah. of doing it. That obviously infuriates all the scouts. <laughs> who then talk to me? Because I basically sit. At, I mean, a hundred days a year, I'm sitting at a game with scouts. This chatter gets out very easily. Yeah. Another way to do it, which is becoming more common, is all the scouts convene, have like two weeks of meetings talk about every player ad nauseum and then they leave the room to go to dinner. They come back and the board has been changed as though the last two weeks was just a show for nobody. Yeah. That happened a couple times this year that I was told about. And the scouts are like, Hey, if you can get me another job, that'd be great. Cause I don't want to work here anymore. Cause they obviously don't care what I think. Like they let me go through this whole charade. I don't know why they're paying us or paying for our travel because it's just two feet into the model that is then mostly numbers and a little bit of our scouting reports. There are other teams. I know the Yankees are notably one of them where they say, Oh, we run a model. And like, you know, maybe a quarter of it, 20% of it, something like that is taking into account all the history and the demographics and stuff that we, our brains can't comprehend this many numbers for every player, but like 75, 80% of it is still our scouting reports. We just do this as like a sanity check, which to me feels like the correct answer. And all the teams that actually like long range have had better than average results tend to have the Dodgers or another one, tend to have uh, the Rays or another. I tend to think those three are the three best run organizations, top to bottom at everything. Their draft approach in certain situations is way more than 50% scouting slash traditional oriented, because again, we're projecting 17 year olds. You don't have full data. Like you kind of have to lean into it. Whereas when you're signing a 28 year old free agent, that's played in the big leagues for six years, you can go all numbers on that and like not necessarily mess up that much.
2: But even Kylie, even those you're saying who have a heavy percentage of scout information in their grades, they're aggregating them mechanically in some way, like yes. they're, they're putting those scout grades into the model and then aggregating them that way, which is the single best way to get the biases out. It's just noise.
0: That, that's something that's fascinating to me is we've now seen it used to be. Upside players, big athletic, thing, football athleticism sort of guys that would like light the NFL combine on fire that like hit the ball a mile in batting practice, but they swing and miss in the games. That used to be gut feel, quote, dumb scouts like those guys. And then all the little Dustin Pedroyas that are underrated, but the numbers love, those are for the smart numbers people. That's how it was. For like, you know, the 10 years after Moneyball and right around 2016, I think it was when Joe Adele went in the first round by Billy Epler, my former boss, he took the the dumb gut feel sort of guy as a numbers guy, because that was the first year where exit velos, So you could quantify the crack at the bat that all the scouts have always Mm -hmm. talked about that then became a number. And yeah. so that in combination with now you can match that with the scouting report number. It's 70 raw power. It's 114 miles an hour off the bat. He's 17 years old on draft day. We can go back historically and say, Oh, and so now that toolsy athletic football athleticism guy became a numbers darling. And you're now seeing scouting oriented teams doing gut feels about a guy's character and like how polished he is and leaning to a different sort of player. So it's been interesting for me the last like five, 10 years to, to watch this happen.
2: Mm-hmm. Adi, we've been holding you off here for a little while.
3: Yeah, and actually, you, you've been you've been answering some of my questions um, along the way. Uh, so, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is how the inputs to the scouts have changed. Clearly, we have these, um, you know, you have the tracking devices that are now being spread down to the high school level. Um, but it's are, are those in the game, or are those, or were the information, or does it mostly come from these showcases? In other words, are we really just getting kind of NFL combine like information about these kids who are in high school, or do we really have Uh, in-game information that that are true inputs to scouts or are they still just watching them play?
2: Adi, tell people what showcases are in baseball.
3: Uh, well, actually, maybe Kylie can explain them more. Um, I'm going to uh, one in about a week. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, maybe you can start with that before you answer my question.
0: Okay, so th- this is a very important element. So if you look back at the like draft results, like just pull up the top 15 picks in the draft from like 20 years ago, there will be dudes you've never heard of that never got out of the lowest levels of the miners that went in the yes. top 10 picks. That does not happen anymore. It is essentially impossible. Nobody in the top 30 picks. Uh, flames out an A ball because what what was basically invented in like the mid 90s is the showcases, which in the summer instead of playing like Legion ball or something that's akin to essentially high school, which is obviously if you're trying to imagine a average high school baseball game you've watched or played in versus the lowest level of the minors, there's like seven gaps between those levels <laughs> unless. You're- oh, yeah. <laughs> Unless it's the two best high schools in the country, which obviously are not usually playing each other. There's like a giant gap between them. So showcase baseball basically just goes and gets the best players in the country or in a region or whatever, has them play each other with a wood bat for the whole summer. So you can imagine if all these guys that are flaming out in the low minors, because we don't know if they can hit, well imagine if we f- we created a level just below the lowest level of the minors, you get way better at that. So that's the huge thing that happened. And now these are being played in minor league stadiums that have TrackMan. uh, Mm -hmm. hardware setup so it's every like whatever it is a hundred times from the time it's released from the hand to the crack of the bat measuring it a hundred times in that 60 feet, six inches, giving you the exit below off the back, giving you the spin rate, giving you the movement, the direction, like all that stuff. And so that's happening the entire summer. A lot of these kids, I've seen them play 15 games and they'll show it on the screen. Like, Oh, that ball was hit 101. So you'll see in the draft broadcast. Uh, if you go watch a replay, like there's a, a clip of a kid named uh, Cam Collier. He's 16 years old, should be a, just finished his high school, sophomore year, a kid threw 94 away to him. Which is like an above average big league fastball he does one of these just flicks his wrist it's at it 101 off the bat uh, and I'm like that's why this guy went in the first round because it's insane that someone at that age can do that and that's the kind of information we have where historically not only was that game not happening 94 wasn't getting thrown to that guy it was 78 we had no idea already he was hitting it if he didn't hit it in batting practice or it wasn't unusually loud there was no way to measure that that's why this is getting so much more efficient and why a draft model is usable
4: yeah, I- I- Gotcha. Uh, is, is that kind of, Is the, the track man and these types of things that's available to the scouts as they're kind of doing their reports, right? From these yeah, showcases?
0: It, it sort of depends. So, like the event I'm going to a couple of weeks, uh, East Coast Pro, is run by scouts. It's free to players, which is another issue, completely separate from all this stuff that's slowly getting fixed by MLB asserting themselves. And subsidizing everything they played at the hoover met stadium in birmingham where the sec tournament is played and because there's no like production values it's just scouts and family and agents there they just put the TrackMan readout that you'd get on the tablet if you're running it they just put it on the jumbotron so everything okay. i just write down what the numbers are because a lot of times in the spring you know average kid average high school they're not going to have a TrackMan unit or a rap soto or like the stuff you put on the knob of the bat or whatever it is and so teams will take the summer and look at him. They'll look in the spring and be like, he looks stronger. Let's go have a private workout at our field, put the bat knob, bring out the track man, the Rep Soto. Let's see if it actually has changed as like a check. But oftentimes you'll need like a state championship game in a minor league field to actually measure that during the spring. Cause it's a lot harder to get that hardware on the field.
4: Mm-hmm. So for in those situations, so it kind of convol, like it kind of confounds this sort of like scouts versus the kind of quantitative data distinction, because essentially the scouts can kind of take the data and, you know, their their evaluations and their reports are, are kind of the first pass synthesis of that data that then is maybe fed
0: into a later model as you well. You
2: might even say they'll be influenced by the data. Yeah. observations yeah. are not independent of it.
0: There's a couple different versions of that. So one version of it is the scouts love it because they're saying this guy's got great movement, but they don't have any data. And now they can say it's 20 inches of horizontal movement on his two-seamer. So it's like, oh, now I can get, my scouting director to come out because the numbers guys tell him it's elite, just like I said it was. But he didn't believe my eye. And the video was grainy and a bad angle and all that. Now, on the other end of things, this happens a lot for scouts scouting the minor leagues, uh, which like turns my stomach, which is, all right, you're a scout. They're paying you $75,000 a year. They send you to go see an A-ball game and you're watching everything. You look at the data ahead of time. You do everything you can do to be like a modern scout. You send in a report and the office calls you and said, this, sc- this report is wrong. The, the data says this guy is a plus curveball, and you said it was average, change it. And then you're like, well, why did you send me here? If <laughs> you already know what the answer is. And that's a good question that no one's answered for me yet, but like that is now becoming a more widespread thing. And that's slowly leaking into amateur baseball, but in amateur baseball, when you're talking 18 year old, you can always say, well, he's going to get bigger and stronger and hit it harder. So that number is useful, but it's not the gospel. Whereas a 25 year old in double a, that is getting pretty close to the gospel at that point.
2: Well, this is, let's just note, this is an important challenge this blending of traditional experts and quantitative analysts and a lot of organizations, baseball, it's really kind of acute because so much of what they've done historically can be replaced. Now, the question for these clubs is what, how can you involve them? Where is the margin for them to work on that might be value added? And obviously it's a huge cultural change from what's been done for hundred plus years. Um, it's a super interesting and, and hard thing to navigate, and I'm sure there are huge differences in how successfully clubs are navigating
5: them. Yeah, Kyle, I was just going to ask you if you were a GM today, from a statistical perspective, you could imagine this is building on Shane's question. You'd love to have scouts' data be totally independent. So if it's perfectly correlated with the TrackMan data, I don't need that the scout. On the other hand, you'd love the scout not only be able to justify her his data, her opinions, but also put it into context if they look at the data. How would you decide to do that? I've never, it's interesting. From all the years I've thought about analytics and baseball, I've never thought about this issue that the data is affecting the scouts, which in some sense could help the scouts, but it could also marginalize their data as less independent. How do you think about it?
0: So I wrote a book. I have one sitting just out of grass. I'll hold it up at the end of the segment. And, look,
2: no, tell us now, out. tell us now, Callie. We'll pimp it for you. What do you got? Yeah,
0: here you go. Let me grab one. There you go. Future value. <laughs>
2: All right, future value.
0: So the the elevator pitch of this was when Moneyball came out, scouts were terrified saying, we're going to get replaced. And it turned out that scouting reports, when all the numbers you have are like walks to strikeouts and on-base percentage for college players, like scouting reports are still way more accurate predicting the future than those numbers are. Now that we have radar-based numbers, some teams can then justify, well, these numbers are just as good as the scout and don't come with all the biases, and we can hire someone for less money that's younger to work in the office and not travel. And so we're saving tons of money and we're not losing any precision. Now, those people are wrong, but they think they're right. And they could pitch ownership that they're right. And so the thing that a GM would tell you that is a is, let's say, one of those Tampa, LA, Yankees, one of those three teams that really knows what they're doing and understands this stuff, what they would tell you is... You can't be a reporter, which is – this gets said to every scout as they're getting uh, trained, which is you can't go to the game and just tell me what happened because I can look at the box score. I can watch the video. I can look at the data. I know what happened too. You can't help me with that. You need to tell me what's going to happen. You'd be forecasting. And so what uh, a lot of games have told me is a version of – again we'll say that amateur scouting there's enough variables you can't capture in the data players still getting better growing all those sorts of things Uh, In the minor leagues they say if you don't go into the stadium and know the pitching coach on both teams know all the ushers know the announcer can tell me which one of them's uh We'll say an a-hole, since I'm not sure what our <laughs> what our problems are here. Who is the good work ethic? Who's working on a new pitch? Talk to the pitcher in front of you that is charting pitches to tell you, oh, he just started throwing that slider yesterday. That's key to that job. Now, imagine double A. you need that. In the big leagues, it's like, well, we know everything, and they have the high-speed cameras on everybody. Imagine what that guy has to be able to do to justify making $150,000 a year, staying in the high-rise uh, hotel across the street, and flying all over the place uh like that guy has to know everyone in the stadium and be able after one pitch to be like this is this guy coming off the disabled list and that first pitch i know something's not right go look in the advanced data you'll find what i'm talking about like that you have to be that good at it to justify that, that sort of job um the <laughs> It lost my train of thought on what my second point was, but the, but the thought is the lower down you go, the more the eyeball matters and telling what this guy's mindset is, how his swing has been changing. Those things are very important. The higher you go, that becomes like the entire part of it. You'd like have to be able uh, to bring something to the table that is not evident to the video scout in the office, just watching it and looking at the data as it comes in. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot to digest. Um, I actually wanted to ask a question a little bit about, your previous observation, which is that we're getting much, much better at forecasting future success of draft picks. And that imagines to me that we should start caring about the major league draft in baseball much more than we ever used to. I mean, I never paid any attention outside maybe the first pick or second pick. We never paid much attention to it because so few players ended up just being good on the teams that you cared about. And it was so far in the future anyway that it was just, why bother? And so I guess what I'm hearing from you is, I should tell me who's been drafted. Who did the Yankees get? Maybe I should care um, because I never cared in the past. And is that is that a, a fair assessment that, 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 that MLB should be selling a draft because it matters?
0: Yes. And like my salary, I think, scales perfectly with the viewers on the draft. So I would love it if that happened. <laughs> yeah. The trading of picks is especially interesting to me. Uh, Yeah, I I totally agree (laughs) with you. And another element of this is the teams I'm talking about how in the last couple of years, basically every team now has a draft model. Ten years ago, it was somewhat novel. They also have models for the minor league level. And you'll talk to teams that will say, oh, at the end of the season, all of our best performers that are young for their level, we promote one level up to play for like a week and that's it. Because we can game other teams' models, because it'll say he finished the season at Double A, but he only played a week there. But he was 20, which is like two years long, young for the level. So we always systematically do this, because then those guys get moved up in the rankings. Because every team has like, well, this prospect is worth 34.2 million dollars, and everybody knows that. But they kind of know like, oh, this team tends to trade for that guy that's young for the level that has a good strikeout rate. Let's just have him throw as hard as he can for a week and put up a huge strikeout rate in one week, so we can get rid of this guy. We're trying to trade him, and we know that they don't have good scouts that can find out if this guy's a good or bad work ethics so when we. We talk to this team. Let's try to push those guys on them. They won't know that they're not any good. And then let's <laughs> lie to the media and tell them to rank those guys high. Because my rankings of the minor league prospects, like I have teams formally have their R&D directors email me and say, can you send me a spreadsheet version of your ranking so I don't have to copy and paste it and reformat it? Just give it to me in the format that I can throw into my database right away. And they just like openly admit this because it's like the question is, is it 1% of your model or is it 40% of your model? Because I'm obviously talking to all 30 teams and they, I've, I've seen the reports teams have. Any one scouting report for a team can be wildly incorrect. And your model – uh, statistically based can like wildly miss on one player. So it's smart to integrate these things, kind of smooth out some of that stuff,
2: mm-hmm. but not
0: like completely negate what your inherent advantage is.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kelly, I want to ask a question about biomechanics. We think of this as one of the newest frontiers in, in sports, but if, as with many of these frontiers, baseball's there first. We had uh, Jimmy Buffy of Reboot Motion on here a couple of months ago. So we dug into it a little bit. But looking at your Twitter feed on some so of these prospects. i just going to
0: send you the tweets, but I guess you already know, saw
2: them. It's awesome. you got these pitch AI um, videos, these short videos of pitchers, um, and it, you see them biomechanics. You see some of the metrics, some of the measurements that come off of it. How is this being used? How common is it? And, and do you think teams are doing a good job of incorporating this information, or is it still real hard to pull into their decision-making?
0: So this is a bit of a frontier. I could – tell you some of the teams I've already mentioned that are either very good at the draft or very model based tend to be basically the entire list of teams that are like have an entire sports science department. And so when I see somebody really light up some of these metrics, uh, I start to you know, ask these teams what they think about these players. And invariably it was almost always, Oh yeah, we like that guy. And I'm like, yeah, I know why you're not going to say why, but I know why, because uh, last year was the first time I got these things from pro play AI. Uh, and I was called an agent for a high school pitcher that I really liked. And he like blew up all these metrics. It was like his extension, his arm speed, uh, the way that he locks his leg, which I knew a couple teams use a number sort of like that, that they internally source that predicts velocity to jump in the future. Uh, And I said, Hey, your guy's really good at X, Y, and Z. And he goes, we are literally standing on the field at a, I won't say the team's private workout. They said almost the exact same words to me as you just said, how did you know that? And so I then called someone with that team and explained to them that story. And they go, Oh yeah, we don't use pro play. We use like our own internal people. Like we think our stuff's more accurate, but it sounds like, you know, directionally you're getting about the same information. And yeah. so I know the teams that use that stuff. So when I get this no, these numbers back from Pro Play, like, the week before the draft, after I send them all my high-speed video I take with my super fancy camera I have right here, I immediately know, like, oh, there's going to be, of the five teams that, like, use this stuff, like, I bet four of them are really on this guy. Um, so now when I go to these showcases, I intentionally, I take uh, this camera here, the little Sony, that now a bunch of teams use. Um, when there's a really good pitcher that I think will go in the top three or four rounds, and he's pitching at a showcase, and I'm, you know, just sweating my butt off here. I go run down the side and take some video, so that I know I can run it over to ProPlay AI at the end of this and find out like, oh, one of those four teams is probably on him now. This is all like very advanced stuff uh, that I figured out in the last couple of years now.
1: So
2: Kylie, give us your sense of the, here's a cynical take, you know, the, the easy margins and efficiencies are all scooped up. And so there's everyone's kind of stretching and these clubs, the names, you know, most of the ones you mentioned anyway, have a lot of resources. And so they're just pouring it where they can and they're just playing with technology. It's fun to look at and neat lines to draw, but we don't really know if this means anything on top of everything else we know about a player. That's the cynical take. What's your sense of whether that's true or whether this is really a promising it's going to change the way we select players, train players, rehabilitate players, which of those two.
0: I think if you take the model from the book Moneyball of like on-base percentage and drafting college players in the draft, broadly speaking, was uh, market inefficiency. I mean, for the 10 years after that book came out, every smart person in a front office would just say market inefficiency about everything. It's like, oh, it seems like this team doesn't know about that. Is it a market inefficiency? And I was like, guys, calm down. It's not, it's not everything. Um, but that, you could say the half-life of that idea was, I don't know, like seven years maybe before all 30 teams integrated that somewhat appropriately into their decision-making models. Now the half-life on those sorts of ideas, like, um, for instance, we've seen a lot of different things in the draft. There used to be, like, when Houston was winning the World Series, Jeff Luna was there, you know, since Disgraced and whatever. Although, I believe it we went to Wharton. Um, they were looking – yeah, there you go. Uh, they were looking exclusively at pitchers with through from high arm slots, high spin, four-seam fastballs that, like, ride up in the zone, and curve balls with high spin rates down. That was their thing. Within two years – Maybe three, like every single team in baseball had correctly valued those guys. The dumbest teams I could think of that don't even know what they're doing and are just copying other people were actively trying to sign those players. So, like, that was gone immediately. Now yeah. there's been a movement. You look at like Ricky Tiedemann of the Toronto Blue Jays was drafted last year, throws from like down here, throws a sinker. And for me, that was like the first big sign of when I went to go see him in Southern California last spring. Uh, I noticed there were five scouting directors there and all five of them from, were from heavy model teams. And I was like, I thought they were looking for this guy. This guy's thrown from down here. It's like the exact opposite guy. And it's only numbers teams here. There were no traditional teams there with high level scouts. And then a numbers team took him and he went from being a third round pick to now one of the top hundred prospects in baseball one year later. Uh, and now I think teams are now looking for low slot guys, but that can have the ball lift without throwing a sinker down there, but throwing like sort of a rising to flat fastball from that low angle um, as like a different variation of what they were looking for. Like the action they wanted to the plate from this guy, they figured out a way to get it from this guy and now yeah. they're looking for that kind of guy because that guy's not properly valued. That basically started a year ago, and now half the teams in baseball are looking for that kind of guy. Cooper Jerpy a guy that uh, went in the draft recently, uh, I think in the twenties, uh, he was that guy this year. And there were a number of teams that told me this guy's the best pitcher uh, in the draft. And if you go talk to eyeball only scouts that don't pay attention to the numbers, they'd be like, this guy should go in the third round. Like, I don't understand why everyone loves this guy that throws sidearm. Like nobody in the big leagues looks like that. And I'm like, in three years, there's going to be a lot of guys in the big leagues that look like that. And everyone will, will have moved on to the next thing, adjusting yeah. to, probably back to this guy. Now that every team had moved on from that guy. So yeah. the half-life of these ideas is uh, from like half the league taking it is like maybe one draft. People will just notice this team's smart. They're doing this. We're going to start doing it. We don't even know why yet.
2: <laughs> okay. And, you, and, and, and you're putting biomechanics as, well, this is the, the of the moment idea. We'll see what its half-life actually is, but this is what people are to right now.
0: And I think that one's a little slower because you have to hire like five people and get some back, and you can't outsource it all. Whereas like copying someone's track man tendency in the draft, like anybody can copy that. I could copy that with how I rank players. That's much easier to pull off. Um, whereas like, you know, doing stuff with Edgertronic video where the, where the camera costs $8,000, you have to hire a full-time stat. You're like in a hundred K to get one camera. It's like 300 K to implement a strategy. Like the, the quote, you know, traditional teams that are a little behind the curve. Like they don't want to throw in 300 K to find out if they know what to do with this. So -hmm. they're gonna be a little behind on those guys. But the camera I just showed you is effectively does all the things you actually need for decision-making and you just carry it around and point and click and it's fine. And so Mm -hmm. now those teams have found a cheap way to find their young scouts that can handle a camera and some admin work and some video editing. They now are hiring kids to do that. And it's not an $8,000 camera. It's like a $1,500. I mean, I'm in the media and I have one. Like they're, they're attainable if you want them. And by the way, they look great on the broadcast. You get to see it come out of the hands of Cooper Jerpy, and you can understand what's going on. And you can see why people say he kind of looks like Chris Sale because he does kind of look like
5: for sale
2: yeah you can see the appeal just the visceral appeal um of the of the lines and the and then you can start running similarity models and all that stuff listen kylie we've kept you longer than we expected to we got to let you go but it's been a lot of fun thanks for making time for us keep up the good work and uh enjoy these showcases you're about to roll off to
0: Thanks. I'm going to try not to get a sunburn with all this Irish skin I got over here.
2: <laughs> well, good good luck with it. Kyle McDaniel, MLB insider for ESPN, longtime analyst, in and out of clubs around Major League Baseball. You can follow him on Twitter. Great follow on Twitter at Kylie MCD. At Kylie MCD. And that has been two full hours of sports analytics, guys, here. Another episode of Wharton Moneyball for the whole crew. We've had the whole crew in here for two hours, which has been a lot of fun. Eric, Shane, Adi. And for the boss man, Maddie Dassey, associate boss man, Dion Simpkins, we appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your
0: sports.